Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and for this episode, we are joined by author and poet Saeed Jones to discuss his new poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World. Can I just say, this collection is insanely good. I cannot stress that enough. You all know poetry isn't really my thing, but this book, oh my gosh, it's the real deal. It's about grief, anger, chaos, memory, and all the things we're dealing with right now in America. Jones is also the author of the 2015 collection Prelude to Bruise and one of my favorite memoirs from 2019, How We Fight for Our Lives, which won the Kirkus Prize for nonfiction. Listen, if you take nothing else away from this episode, Saeed Jones can write. Remember, next week, Wednesday, September 28th, we will be discussing the Stacks Book Club pick, The Trees by Percival Everett with Lisa Lucas. If you're looking for any of the things we talked about on today's episode, be sure to click the link in the show notes to find everything we discuss. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. You'll get bonus episodes of our show, like our most recent one with good friend of the pod, Cree Miles, plus our virtual book club meetups, our bookish discord, and more. If those perks sound exciting to you, or you just really want to show your love for this little black woman run indie book podcast, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Thank you to our newest members, Lola, Mikel Banyas, and Jane Hunter. Thank you all so much. And thank you to everyone in the Stacks Pack. There truly would be no podcast without you all. Now it's time for my conversation with Saeed Jones. All right, everybody. To say that I'm excited today would be like the understatement of the year. Many of you know, I wrote a list of guests that I wanted to have before I ever recorded an episode of the podcast. And today I have one of those bucket list guests. It is author and poet Saeed Jones. Saeed, welcome to the stacks. Hi, Tracy. We did it. We, we did, did it. it. We're here. <laughs> I want. So when your memoir came out in 2019, I had sort of just started the show, but I, I, I got an arc and I was like, I'm going to get him on the show. And your team was like, 
sorry, you're not fancy enough. So oh, now no. I'm finally fancy enough for you. I'm here. I'm here. You know, I was just I was just a comet making my way across the stars to you. Just yes, took a little bit yes. longer. We just needed a little more time to marinate. Now we have even more things to talk about. So that's true. That's true. Before we get into like some random stuff, we have to talk about your new poetry collection alive at the end of the world. So in about 30 seconds or so, can you tell folks what it's about? Sure. In some ways, I think of this new book as a kind of a sequel to my memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. You know, um, at, at this point in my life, I'm 10 years into the experience of of grieving my mother who, who died in May of 2011. And so then, you know, 10 years finds us at this moment in the present in the midst of a devastating pandemic. And I think it's fair to say, you know, that kind of phrasing of, I feel like it's the end of the world. I feel like, like, what's going on? Is everything, you know, I just wanted to drill into that sentiment and to see what I could uncover. And I think for me, Alive at the End of the World is kind of me connecting personal grief with a sense of collective and maybe even historical grief, you know, and, and the sense that honestly, it's a state of being, you know, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the sense of the apocalypse, it's, it's, it's a vibe. Yes, it is. It is the only <laughs> vibe these days. We, so we both share that we lost parents. My father died in 2012. And one of the things that we've been talking about on the show recently is grief. We had an author on who wrote a book about grief and we've been talking a lot about like the acute grief that you feel like personal private grief. And then mm-hmm. there's like the communal grief and right. the societal grief. And we mm-hmm. talked about like grieving America and what it means to be black in America and like how that affects how we grieve and all of that. And then I read your collection and I was like, wow, this is like <laughs> the exact book uh-huh. that I needed in this moment. I'm wondering how, you know, 10 years after the death of your mother, how you're thinking about grief differently than maybe you were five years ago or or f- three years ago when the, your other book came out or, or like how these things have shifted for you. Sure. I mean, the, the first two words that come to mind are humility and mm. gratitude. Mm. One, because, you know, the last few years, what people are having to endure, and again, you know, present tense, um, in terms of the loss and the circumstances, feeling abandoned, you know, by our government, by by each other at times, you know, mm-hmm. people who are dealing with, you know, being immunocompromised, long COVID, you know, all of these things, like a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm just on my own, you know, mm-hmm. like, are we even, you know, and, and, and so I really feel a sense of deep humility, because as devastating as it was to lose my mother, I never felt alone. I never felt abandoned in the circumstance. I never was made to feel um, ashamed of what I was going through, you know? And I just remember as I was working on this book, you know, thinking about people who had to say goodbye to their loved ones, their parents, you know, on iPads over the yeah. phone, because yeah. many of many people couldn't even, you know, be, be bedside. And I was like, wow, I was able to have an organic bereavement process. And 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 then the second um, part, it's like the gratitude is, you know, there were times when I wasn't sure I would be able to keep living. I I, I was I was really upended and I, I struggle with in depression and anxiety. But as you know, grief is different. They're siblings, yes. but yes. grief does kind of come at you in a different way. And I feel such gratitude to have been able to keep living, to to find my footing, you know, even mm. as here we are in the future. And it's yeah. like, well, great. Yeah. <laughs> your, Glad reward, I made it. <laughs> your reward is like dealing with all this bedlam and chaos. But I do have gratitude. And, and I think 
as I'm sure you understand, you know, our relationship with the people we lost, it doesn't end, it simply changes. And I right. can feel, you know, at times when I'm really lucky, like I can feel my mom being like, yep, I knew you could do it. I knew you would get there. Yeah, to- I could so relate to that. So you wrote a memoir and you've written two books of poetry. I am not very good at poetry, like reading it. I really struggle. Mm-hmm. And I did not struggle with this book at all. And when I finished it, I text an author friend of mine who I knew had read it also. And I was like, it's it's really good. And they were like, yeah, Saeed just knows how to get out of his own way. Oh, and wow. so I'm wondering, <laughs> That's I'm wondering if you... How do you get out of your way? Like, how do you write these poems and just say, okay, I did it and like walk away? That's a good, I would love to, I'd love to go talk to this person and be like, how did I do it? What, what is it? What is it about the writing that, I mean, no, really, because that's the best, you know, Um, I get in my way a lot. Mm. I do. I think for me, once I have, and it can take years, it can take years, well before the writing has started for a book project. But I think if I think about the work I've published, once I've been able to hone in on the intention Mm. and locate the, it's usually me, right? Because usually the the, the writing is kind of based (laughs) on me. I'm I'm often drawing from, from personal narrative. Once I'm able to hone in on the version of myself that is best equipped to help us understand whatever idea, um, it almost feels like acting. I think Mm. With these, with particularly with poetry, you know, I, I'm I'm using and this book is pretty. You know, I wanted to embody chaos, so there's a lot of <laughs> formal. I'm throwing a lot at you. We're getting, you know? we're gonna get yeah. there. Good, Don't worry. good. So there's a lot going on, but when you set that dynamic aside, I think right. I almost it's like they're almost like monologues, mm-hmm. and I think I just really try as best I can to like lock myself in to the perspective of whatever that voice is. You know, like early in in the book, there's a poem titled "A Memory," where you know now in retrospect, I realize it's like oh, it's a zombie. It's mm. <laughs> it's it's you know it's someone who's dead and is like angry at how we kind of move on from the dead who's like "Uh uh-uh y'all aren't going to forget me and I Mm. think once I was able to just hone in on that deep need what would it feel like what would it feel like to be so angry about being forgotten that you could almost literally reanimate yourself Mm. then the music the rhythm everything is just serving that need and I think that's how I get out of my way I think I I like that (laughs) I like that I mean it's a kind of a hard question to answer because like how you you don't only know when you're in your way when you sort of like look back. Right. Like it's hard to know when you're fucking yourself up in the moment. Right. Absolutely. And I guess the other question and the other part of that is, you know, it takes time and, and, you know, you're getting to see the polished edited, my, my editor, Erica Stevens is an incredible collaborator, you know, so, so a lot happens, but I think, yeah, often when I'm in my way, it's because I'm thinking too much about everything outside of that dynamic. Right. You know, it's like you haven't gotten like the specificity. Yeah. I'm worrying about like the reader. I'm worrying about, oh, what are other people? You know, it's like you, you kind of have to isolate. You have to take yourself to the deepest quietest part of the woods almost. Mm. I think to really kind of, for me to write the kind of poem I want to write. Yeah. Okay. So then you've written, let's say you've written a bunch of poems and you know, you're working on this project is there a lot of like, this one's in, this one's out? Oh no, I want that one back. Like, are you writing with the idea of a book or are these things that are you're writing over time and you're like, oh, that one I wrote five years ago, maybe I can make it. Like, how does the actual collection come to be? 
That's a great question. It's pretty chaotic. Um, (laughs) Fair, fair. I will say some of the oldest poems in the book are the numbered grief poem, you know, grief number 913, grief number. So I knew I had this idea of the different kinds of losses, the different things we can grieve. You know, I think, you know, there's a poem about, you know, hookups at bars and it's clear you're kind of like grieving decisions. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) You're grieving decisions. (laughs) Um, So I I had that thread, you know, and this idea of what are the things we're grieving in real time, which really feels like alive at the end of the world, endings Mm -hmm. and beginnings, loss and continuation. And then I wrote the first poem that opens the book, which is centered in a mass shooting um, the first, and it's a title poem, Alive and in the World. So I wrote a series of those poems where I wanted to explore the different ways, in my mind, an apocalypse functions and, and mm. what it means to us, how it creates meaning for us. And then, yeah, I don't know. You you kind of, it's like, for me, it's like I end up with, like, a not a handful. I would say 20, let's say 20 to 25 poems. Let's start there. Where I see enough themes. And then out of that, I begin to, the decision is, what do I want to write more of? Mm. And what do I feel like, okay, we've got it. You got enough of mm-hmm, X, mm-hmm. Y, Z theme. And so wh- what do I need to focus on more? You know, like I remember getting a note from my editor about desire. She was like, desire is the twin of grief. So, So how mm. can we you know, bring more desire into the book. And and so you, you begin to see that develop, um, you know, where I'm kind of like the world can kill itself, but I'm going to have an orgasm yeah, tonight. Yeah. Damn it. You know, <laughs> you know, like we, own, I still have a body. I still have a body, you know? So, yeah. So that's kind of, it's like, you kind of have like a, maybe what ultimately will become half of a manuscript. And to me, I begin to think of like, okay, what are the new questions emerging? And what are questions I feel like I'm satisfied with the answer and thus can go in a different way? Um, And then what was really exciting for me is that, um, well, well, it was exciting. Um, Then last summer, Paul Mooney died. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting being, you know, already pretty deep in this project about grief and loss and history and everything. And then a comedian who... I liked Paul Mooney. I liked his work. I mean, I, I was a big right. fan, but I was really bowled over when he died. Like, mm. it, like so much came at me. Mm. And and because I was in the middle of the, I was like, well, let's examine, like, why are you having this? And so out of that loss, then I wrote, <laughs> it was like quite an undertaking for me, um, like an entire sequence of poems that I decided to write in the order that they appear in, in, in the first poem oh, okay. that was inspired. So I kind of gave myself a new project. And, right. and that was... An interesting like last act in the process um, because it it challenged me. One suddenly I was doing research and and reading all of these books and watching documentaries and everything to learn about all of these people. But also it was like making myself go way out to mm-hmm. find unexpected connections to the central theme, and it right. was wild. Like. I didn't know that Aretha Franklin's mother died when she was a little girl mm-hmm. and of a heart attack, yeah. similar to my own mother. You know, so it's like you yeah. think you're just writing about this figure and, oh, how interesting learning about little Richard or or, or right, Luther right. Vandross. And then it's like it always comes back to the center. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. Right. You should I don't know if you have or not, but you should read Shine Bright by Danielle Smith. Okay. Um, it's about black women in pop music. Oh, Daniel Smith, the music. Yes. Oh, okay. yes, yes, I love yes. Her. yes. It's so great, but there's a huge section on Aretha Franklin, and I didn't know that information either until I had read that book. And then when I got to your book, for for whatever reason, kind of what you're saying, your book has 
is sort of like the thesis of this year of this podcast, like oh, grief, wow. pop, black pop culture. Um, we did White Negroes, that book, White Negroes. Okay. by yes. And like, I feel like that's in here. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Jason Reynolds on talking a lot about like breathing. And that, that really popped out when I read the, 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 that's not snow, it's ash like mm-hmm. that, you know, like there's mm-hmm. just been this book for whatever reason is like, was the exact book that I felt like I needed and like that feels like this year of the podcast. So I just think it's interesting, that's, similar to what you're that's saying. That's such an honor. That's such yeah. an honor. And one, I love books that take me to other books. I yes. love culture yes. that helps me connect the dots to other parts of culture. But also I'm just so honored because that was one of the intentions. And that's why I say it's a bit of a sequel to the other memoir because though it's a poetry collection and it's not all you know first person, it's not always Saeed as on the page as a character, I wanted you to get the sense that you were getting almost a time capsule mm-hmm. in, in like, Said as like a grieving apocalyptic historian, just what's going on, and, <laughs> right. and and it's and you're right. I mean, Danielle Smith, her podcast, Black Black Girl oh, Songbook. Songbook. It's so important to me. I'll be listening to one of those episodes and just bawling. The Natalie Cole episode? Oh my God. (laughs) And then I couldn't stop listening to This Will Be. I couldn't stop. My Spotify was like, you've listened to one song in the last seven years and it's this. Spotify's (laughs) like, are you okay? okay? So I love that you're picking up on that because that was really true for the experience of creating the book. I wanted to, as a poet, kind of capture what it feels like to, Mm -hmm. one, be having these ideas, but also, yeah, I'm a consumer of culture too and yeah. I love Jason Reynolds and breathing yeah. yes yeah oh. it's so it makes me really happy so people who are listening if you haven't read the book yet you I think you need this poetry collection and I never say that usually I'm like you you might be okay without it <laughs> I don't know but this one I'm really like this is one of the ones Thank and you. and so the other thing that I love about this book and you and just like from the moment that we got on today is you're so energetic and and funny and you find the jokes and things and that's so present in this collection like there's like the dead dozens which i think i had to pick <laughs> is probably my favorite poem besides the first okay poem. then you are a wicked person yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, love that. I was like reading that one being like this is doing a lot for me and then i was like this is not the kind of poem you want to admit that you like but it was the first one and then and then this and this dead dozens one and there's like this humor and this sort of like you know, that's life of it all. And so how is it hard to bring that part of yourself into something like this? Or is that just who you are and it comes with you no matter what? Um, I'm, I love that you love the dead dozens. I mean, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite <laughs> little demons too. Um, it's, I have found it's been difficult for me to write my humor, mm. my laughter, into mm-hmm. my books. Um, I laugh a lot. I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm a, I was listening to um, this week's episode of Vibe Check, the, the podcast I'm doing with Sam Sanders and Zach Stafford. And I was texting my boy. I was like, I'm very giggly this week. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear me like just kind of laughing in the background a lot, even as we're talking about really serious stuff. And that's just how I am. And I think it's showing up in my writing more, perhaps because I'm more confident. And I would like to think because I'm a better writer, you know, like, mm. Because I don't, I, every I want everything to have impact and intention. I don't want someone to think I'm just being silly to be silly, right. so to speak. And so the dead dozens is a good example of. There's a lot going on, but it, it but it's also rooted in the tradition of the dozens. It's also, you know, there's been a lot of thematic work with grief at that point in the book. So right. I hope you can understand where that speaker is, why he is being kind of 
jaded or, or, or cynical with what he's going through. And and then, you know, all of the history and the examinations of anti-Black racism throughout the book so that when you get to that yeah. last stanza, it lands, you know? And so I think it was like, you know, figuring out how humor could function you know, like rhythm or repetition, you know, and I don't know. I think humor is one of the highest forms of art. It's yeah. really hard. Hard. <laughs> so hard. Oh my gosh. It's really difficult. So it's hard. much easier, I think, to be, you know, kind of dramatic and, and serious. And which and I love that. I love yeah. that that key, that register. It's much easier for me to access that than for me to and it's weird. It's it's one thing for me to be silly just like, like I'm talking to you or in conversation. It's very different for me to be in kind of writer mode, focusing mm-hmm. on line breaks and still be able to access humor. And I'm just, I'm proud. I feel like I'm just getting into it. I'm just yeah. starting. But this is definitely, I think, the the most humor, most humor, humorful? Oh, my God. Humorous? Humorous. <laughs> <laughs> the most humorous book of mine. <laughs> I feel like what's hard about... Well, so I was I was an actress. I was in theater. And I feel like what's easy, at least in that way, about like doing dramatic performance versus comedic is that to do dramatic, you just have to get vulnerable and open up. But to do comedy, you have to get vulnerable and open up and you have to calculate. Like you, yes. you have to figure out what the joke is and how it works. Whereas like, if it's just like a scene where you're crying, it's like, I just have to, I just have to access the crying. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like it's like, you know, like you're saying, like it takes a little more skill because there's that added layer of like, I have to be honest. It has to be truthful, but it also has to have a punch and it has to work with wherever I am and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, Okay, form. So we've done poetry on the show a few times uh, for book club. Like once a year, we do a poetry collection, and I always have a poet on to help talk about it. And we have landed on the debate of this show, which has to do with punctuation, line endings, Ooh. and form when it comes okay. to performance versus reading of okay. a poem. Okay. I, as I just mentioned, come from a theater background. So I feel very strongly that line endings are to be honored when they when you read a poem. But every time I ever hear a fucking poet read a fucking poem, they just go straight to the punctuation. And so my question to you is, how do you feel and think about line endings versus punctuation? Like, should they what what do you honor? And is it different for you when you're thinking of someone reading it off the page versus saying it out loud. I know that you think about that because in the notes about the Luther Vandross poem, you talk right. about how it should be difficult to say the words like right. performance that poem in wise. particular. Yeah. yeah. So like, twister. I know that's something you're thinking about. How much are you thinking about the reader's experience of reading the poem? You know, like all of those questions, mm-hmm. it's the central poetry question of this podcast. Yeah. Um, this is a rich question. Rich line of questioning. It's a lot. <laughs> um, I think I would say, okay, for the reader, for the reader holding the book in their hands or, or looking at it on their screen, you know, I think form, punctuation, line endings, enjambment is important to visually, and if you're reading, and I hope you feel, you know, encouraged to read my poems out loud to yourself or to your friends or or whoever, you know, to kind of guide you to kind of recreate a Saeed Jones reading experience. I'm not there with you. I'm not, there right. is an audio, there will be an audio book. Of, of and it's you reading it? At the end of, yeah, it's me reading okay. it. Great. Yeah. So that will be an option, but you know, that's a lot of what I'm thinking about on the page. How can I recreate 
or, or help the reader recreate that organic experience for themselves because I'm not there. You know, if it was just like a block of text, you you're, you just have very little information. And sometimes I will use a block of text, but I want you to understand the intentions there. In terms of me reading from this book, I think of I think of my books, particularly my poetry collections as living texts. And so it's, I'm never going to read the same poem the same mm-hmm. way twice. Um, it's exciting actually to find new opportunities for rhythm. I don't want to go like off book. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go somewhere where you're like, if someone were holding the book, you know, during a read, they're like, what right. the hell is he? What you know, is but yeah, I, I do think it's important to respond to the space, to respond to the color. You know, there are poems in the book uh, that, like, actually, the dead dozens. I mean, it's I, I've, I'm still learning how to read it out loud, mm-hmm. and and because it's it's very different if I'm just like reading it in the audio booth, <laughs> right, right, doing right. the audio book, and then reading it in front of an audience, and and what's the tone and and, and color that I need to access. So, yeah, I, I think. The punctuation and the line breaks in gem are really important for the reader on the page to guide them. I think a lot of people are intimidated by poetry, which has everything to do with the canon, our yep. education system, the way we are made to feel. Um, I think most of us like poetry is this sacred domain of dead white people. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, like like scripture or something, just mm-hmm. inaccessible, you know, and 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 so I'm trying to invite you in. That's what I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to lure you in and then and then work on you. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost, you know, all the poems in a way are traps um, mm-hmm. where, you know, I'm finding a different way to kind of seduce a reader. And then, you know, hopefully we can like get to some hopefully unexpected but meaningful idea together. And so as a reader, when I'm in front of people, I'm trying to now I'm I'm using I'm using performance and all of those other tools. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I just want it to be good. I don't think that's such a, you know, but I don't, it's not, um, I'm not a strict constitutionalist. Okay. This is what I'm trying to say. You're not like me. I just love a rule. And I feel, I I think for me, what it is, is that I feel very insecure about reading poetry. Okay. And so I'm like, what is the author trying to tell me so that it will help me understand this better? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, what are my clues? And then I get so stressed out that I'm like, ah, this doesn't fit like what I think this, you know what I mean? Like, And see, that's the thing for me. It's like, if you were getting ready to read some of my work to me, it's almost like I want to, I hope that I've written and structured the poem in a way that's actually liberating for you Mm -hmm. as a Mm -hmm. reader where you Mm -hmm. feel, you know, to build up. Cause it's kind of like, you know, there are really intelligent people who, when they talk about their expertise, it's like dispiriting. Like mm-hmm. you, you just like you leave the lecture being yeah. like, well, I will never even attempt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then there's a type of really intelligent, talented person where it's empowering mm-hmm. and you leave and you want to learn more. And that's when you're like, let me go pick up those other books. Let me, you yeah. know, let me pick up a copy of White Negro because yeah. the way site like embodied appropriation was really interesting. That's yeah. what I want. And so yeah. I, I, I hope... I hope that the way I use, you know, form is, you know, thrilling. I hope it colors you and, and you're you're willing to kind of take risks in the spirit of the law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so I'd be making con- why did I think I'd be making like jokes about constitutional law? Like, I didn't why are see you that. like the new Supreme Court justice? <laughs> Someone Look call Katanji. Don't Girl, give you're me out. A You've been replaced. <laughs> Um, okay, so speaking of form and all of mm-hmm. this, you have a poem in the book that is a sideways poem. Yes. 
Can you please tell me what you're trying to tell me with that? Because those poems are the ones where I'm like, okay, like I'm I'm feeling dead dozens. It's like these little stanzas, mm-hmm. like these little mm-hmm. boom chakalakas. I know what's going on. And then I, you know, you get to the one that it's like, I have to turn the whole book. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to be doing here? Like, I feel scared. Good. That was Talk the intention. That was the, <laughs> the beginning. Out. I mean, because so much of what I was thinking about, particularly, obviously, when I was writing the book, but also when it became time to think about structure and and arranging the poems, which is always very exciting. Mm. I was interested in how can I how can I productively destabilize the reader. So like that's what mm. like I said like luring you in and you get yeah. a few poems and you're like oh okay I know and then it's like ah you know yeah. and now and now there's a poem on its side and everything about that poem to me is is truly chaotic it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's upsetting I mean the speaker is really going through it what I say about grief. Um, in that poem is, you know, pretty wild. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the ideas that I'm working through, like this kind of, you, you can't tell, I, I feel if, as you're reading it, if what, if the speaker's in a good place or not. Right. right? Like you don't, right. you don't know, like, is this, is this a reliable or unreliable? You know, I wanted right. you to be on your toes. And I think that's an important kind of reading sensibility for that poem. And so, you know, and then part of it was also the length. I really wanted to preserve the length because it does actually reward if you kind of follow it and reading it out loud, it pays off. And then I was like, oh, we turned it on its side. I never thought I would publish a poem, a sideways <laughs> poem. You know, it, it, will I ever do it again? We will see. But I, I hope that, like, exactly your response was what I wanted, where you're oh, like, good. wait a minute. I, I so wanted, I got the answer. I wanted Tracy to be like, what the hell is going on? And then you turn the page and you see me immediately kind of nervously second-guessing the title. And so then right. It's, right, 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 I mean, right. You know, right. so I just wanted to – I don't know. It, it, I do know. It was both – Thinking about, again, like, what is the apocalypse? It's that sense of structure and systemic failure, like, before Mm -hmm. your very eyes. But it's also kind of like your own intuition and wisdom, like, suddenly you're questioning it, you know? And I wanted the reader to feel that way as they're reading a poem by a a speaker who's clearly equally destabilized. Right, right, right. Okay, so I got the answer right. You got it. A plus on the poetry (laughs) test. You're you're, you're very Hermione about this. Are you a Virgo? What's your sign? I'm not. I'm a Leo. Okay. All right. Leo, Aquarius, Aquarius. I love a good Leo. Yeah. But I I feel like a Virgo in my heart a lot of the times. I really, I really (laughs) do. You're like, did I pass the test? Is there extra credit? You forgot to assign homework. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I love a rule, a tech. I love a home. I love homework. I'm like, great. This is what I have to do. Like, my my checklists have, like, actual little boxes next to everything so I can check them off. It's the joy. Um, Okay. But so here's the other thing about what you've done that's sort of in this line is you have this section of notes where you sort of, you don't explain the poems, but you add context for the reader. And as a person who loves to be right and know, this was maybe a thing that I didn't know that I loved more than anything in the world because I, it was helpful to me. I went back. So I read the book without knowing the notes. Then I went back after I read the notes and reread some of those poems with what you had said and was like, wow, I got some of that. I didn't get some of that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. 
there's not really a question. I guess the question is why did you why did you give us this sort of notes sheet in this way? Like I've seen notes where it's like this was published in Guernica right. or whatever, right. but mm-hmm. not notes that were like, hey, this poem about Whitney Houston has to do with this book mm-hmm. that I read or this movie that I watched. And and like there's one that's like this is a nonfiction poem or like this mm-hmm. is me dealing with the death of my mother at the time. And this is me dealing with the death of my mother 10 years later. And so I'm just wondering, like, why why you gave that to us? And do you think that other poets would look down on something like that? Because I feel like so many poets are like, if you don't get it, you don't get it. You know, and like you are sort of like, if you don't get it, like, here's a, here's a hint. Right. I mean, I, I think it for me, it was in part specific to this book. I mean, mm-hmm. even the epigraphs page, you know, where I'm drawing from Frank, Frank B. Wilderson and Alexander Chi, I you know, which and is this yeah. month's book or which was last month's oh. book club pick for the stacks? Another another tie into this season. I love anyway, it. I sorry, love it. go so ahead. Organic. It's like a spider web. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and already, you know, there's some kookiness going on on that page. And so part of me, again, was like thinking in terms of structure, our assumptions about books. Like you said, usually a note section is very staid and, you know, pra- like almost like not boring, but like brutally pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, often note sections are literally just maybe like an obscure term. Um, and then like to like let you know where the work previously appeared, you know. And I was like, oh, let's destabilize that. I mean, like the little the note for the little Richard poem is essentially an essay onto its own, mm-hmm. you know, and and just kind of working with that. Um, and so that was one thrill. And then the other is I like the idea of, you know, I, I enjoyed structuring this book. I was very intentional of and about what appears when because I wanted it to hit the reader in a certain way. But also I wanted to create an opportunity for a reader who really enjoyed the book to have another rich experience. You can never like read a book for the first time. Like that that's right. a very special right. experience, right? But I love that like you mentioned with the notes, maybe you can go back to a poem with a new color. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, it's not snow, it's ash, you know, like you go, I mean, like, oh, okay, Said has a certain, like, this poem means something to him in a very mm-hmm. specific way. So, yeah, I just love the idea of chaos and that, like, you never, you like, you, when is Said done? Like, are we yeah. free yet? Like, yeah. see, what's going, can I go to the restroom? You know, like, what's, <laughs> you know, I, just, I liked that, keeping you on your toes. But also, yeah, I just, I don't know. And maybe the other thing is if I'm trying to write into and about the experience of this systemic failure, uh, being betrayed by so many of our rights, histories, and rituals, part of what we're grieving is context. Mm. Part of what we're so freaked out about is that we're, it's like, like, you know, we tell people like, read the room. How can you read the room in 2022? It's just like, it's total confusion, disarray, disorder. And so I think also it's almost like nice at the end of this being like, okay, here's a little bit, baby. Like That's, that's how I felt. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just a little. And the thing that's so funny about that too is like for me, I actually felt like I understood the majority of this collection as I read it through the first time, which is a very rare experience for me. It's happened like with Nate Marshall's Finna. Like I just, oh, I really connected with that poetry collection. I felt like I got a lot of it off the bat. But having this little like, okay, here's here's a hint. I was like, thank you. <laughs> I really yeah. appreciate. I love what this. I love what he does with the. I guess it's not quite doppelgangers, but the the other Nate Marshall that just yes, following yes, yes. that line of inquiry. Oh my is god, just so brilliant. Good. Yeah, so and much. and again with the notes, you know, because I worked on it, you know, like I would any other poem. It had several drafts, mm. and if I felt that I was 
explaining a poem from a space of insecurity, mm-hmm. I cut it out. Yeah. You know, it's because there aren't notes for like every poem. The yeah. intention is not to, it's not like a key guide, you know, right. at the end of like a study guide or anything like that. It's more like adding a new color or often creating an opportunity to take you somewhere else. You know, yeah. um, like I, I hope you, you know, after reading the Luther Vandross poem, you have an experience and then you read the note. And I hope you're inspired to read Craig Moore's incredible biography of him, mm, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, kind of extending the life of the experience. Yeah. Did you ever read um, Lacey M. Johnson's book, The Reckonings? Are you familiar with that book? So her note section in that book is similar to what you've done where it's like, it's not notes like this is the source or whatever. It's not like, like a bibliography essentially, but it's similar where she like talks about different essays and different moments. And, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And, and then reading this, I was like, oh, I, I just like these notes because I know how much work goes into writing these books and I know how much research everyone's doing. And, and I, it's like, it's interesting to think about how you were thinking about what you were writing. Right. Yeah. And I, I, and I think again, like, as I was saying about like our kind of national cultural understanding of poetry for a lot of people. Again, it's intimidating. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it's on this pedestal. And I think, you know, I want to break that down. And, yeah. and, and there are different ways to do that in terms of subject matter. But also, again, like even with the notes, I hope it, it's like, I'm inviting you in. I always mm-hmm. want to feel like you are being brought in to the experience um, because I trust myself. And I know a lot of what I'm doing is complicated and, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with I don't know, embracing the reader. I, I, to your earlier question, I do and did have some mentors who, who aren't fond of notes, who mm. aren't. Um, and I get that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it, it depends on what you're working with. Like, um, you know, when I work with emerging writers who are writing across languages, mm-hmm. um, I am not some, I don't think we need to be exp- like translating language to people. Right, I right, think right. it's like, let them, let them do the work just as, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, um, as English, you know, inflict our biases on people of other languages. But I don't know. I just think in a book about the, there's just like a lot going on mm-hmm. <laughs> and these cultural <laughs> figures. And, and again, because so many, I'm trying to think of an example. With a poem about Whitney Houston and Mm -hmm. and her longtime love, Robin Crawford, you know, with that poem, again, I just wanted to get to the moment. I just Mm -hmm. wanted to get to this this very, very specific, intimate, soft moment of confession, really. Mm -hmm. That's really what that poem is. You know, and, and to me, that's rich and worthy, but... After I finished the poem and, you know, and I'm moving on with the book, I was still haunted um, by the fact that Robin never actually got to listen to the last voicemail, voice message she got from Whitney Hughes. Like, that just, that just messed me up. And, and, you know, anyone who's lost a loved one will tell you, you know, the I remember when I... I lost my phone at one point, you know, years mm-hmm. and years ago. And I and I was not able to recapture all of the voice messages and stuff of my mom. And eventually I lost the sound of her voice. And mm-hmm. so that stayed with me. And so that's kind of what's undergirding that note is that it, I just really felt, one, it, yes, it is interesting from a historical perspective, but also the people who get that mm-hmm. get it. And, and I yeah. wanted to honor it in its way. Ugh. I love that so much. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle 
whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about the cover. Yay! It's <laughs> so good. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I feel like you've kind of... Given me the answer to crack the cover, which is like chaos, chaos <laughs> humor, chaos. a little destabilizing. Mm-hmm. But how much were you involved in the cover? Like, were there different options, or was I know sometimes it's like they sent you a cover and you're like, this is perfect, I love it. So, talk right. about your experience with this one, right? I guess I have been actually pretty involved in all of my covers. This cover, so it's a photograph by Lola Flash. Lola Flash is a friend, someone I think of as as an artistic mentor. Lola is a queer black person and um, one of the original members of ACT UP, the, you know, the AIDS activism group. And um, and so I just, I was really honored in this book about the future and the peril that the cover is by a queer elder, that the foreword is by D.A. Powell, again, someone else I think of as, as a queer mentor and elder, you know, connecting the past, the present and the future is really important to me. And then, yeah, so Lola has a, a series of photographs. This is Lola in the photo. That's oh. Lola in this suit. Lola was arrested for weed possession 
at one point and went and it was like, you know, I mean, fuck, fuck the system, legalize yeah. marijuana, you know, pay reparations to black people who yes. had their entire lives upended by the mm-hmm. war on drugs. Um, so she had this prison jumpsuit um, and she was just like thinking about it. And then she <laughs> came across this helmet. And so it, it's just like really interesting, like this idea of, to me, this Afro-futuristic image that's also directly connected to the war on drugs, to mm-hmm. America's uh, mm-hmm. incarceration system. And yeah, and and then the image, because that's the series, but the specific image itself, there's something about this shiny mm-hmm. looks car. I mean, it is so beautiful. It's yeah. reflecting everything. I mean, it's just so cool. But this person had to get out and push it. <laughs> Through the grass. Like, yeah. Like not even car, on a like, road. <laughs> what's going on? And so, you know, one, it's it's an arresting image because I think it's, you know, an unexpected combination of of things. But also just to me, the poem of the cover is, you know, the shiny, expensive future we were promised in the end is a burden that mm. now a black queer person has to get out and push forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's like, oh and ain't God. that what it is? Ain't that yeah. what we're dealing with? Holy cow. Wow. I see that. I, I see that you're a poet with your use of language <laughs> there. Um, is there anything that's not in this collection that you wish was? Oh gosh. Is there anything not? I mean, probably, probably. Let me think. <laughs> I was a pretty brutal editor with this book like like prelude to bruise you'll notice is much longer it's a much Mm. more it's a lush book and this book i was like i I don't have time for lushness this is like Mm -hmm. mtv unplugged because i you know the speaker's running for his his life (laughs) kind of throughout (laughs) the book um i don't know let me uh no i'm okay with it i'm good for now ask me in a year yeah (laughs) (laughs) i know we're doing this before the books even come out so you the, the thing I've what I what I will tell you what I've learned is you never have to be done writing with an experience. And as I say mm. in one of the poems, Date Night, you know, it's not up to me when I get to stop crying. Mm. Um, you know, I think at the time that I finished How We Fight for Our Lives, and th- it, this is like laughable now in retrospect, but I was like, okay, and uh now I'll never have to write about my mom again. Like I, I've, I've, I've done it. I've, I'll never have to write done. about, I've done it. I've put it down and now we can close that cover. And of course it's not done and it changes. And here we are 10 years later and it's different and, and there are ideas to discover and, and examine still. So I think I, out of that experience, I think I'm okay because I've learned that like, even if, you know, in the middle of the book tour, I realized, oh, I would have loved to have more of Whitney Houston in the book. Well, damn it. I could write more Whitney Houston poems, yeah. you know, yeah. down the line. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So we always talk with authors about how they write, like where where you are, how many hours a day, how mm. often, do you have music on or no? Do you have snacks or beverages? That part's very important. <laughs> um, are there rituals? <laughs> like set the scene of sort of how you write and maybe tell us if it's different when you're writing poetry versus prose, if there's any difference in how you approach it. It is different. Um, I will say for this book, part of it was the pandemic. Yeah. Um, most of my books are written around the world. Mm. Um, most of my books are usually written like half in the United States, half wherever the hell I go as a Sagittarius. And, <laughs> and you know, I get a lot of work done in cafes in Mexico City or Berlin or, or wherever. Um, this was all written 
at my desk mm. <laughs> in my living room here in Columbus, Ohio. I find now I tend to do, I prefer to do my writing early in the morning. So with this book, uh, I would wake up early in the morning. Ideally, I was waking up around six to write. But what I would try to do is if I woke up, I woke up. Okay. So if I woke up at 4.30 in the morning, and and often, and when I say woke up, it's like I realize like my eyes are closed, but I'm starting to revise a poem in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead of going, oh, I'll get to it later. It was like, just get up. Just mm-hmm. get up and go to your desk and take a nap after, you yeah. know. Um, I think that's helpful for me. One, there's something about the dreaminess, the quiet. But also for me, earlier in the morning, it's like too early. Like the dog isn't ready to go for a walk yet. Um, my phone isn't vibrating. Nothing is happening on Twitter that feels demanding or especially interesting. Right. And so I'm able to kind of protect that space. And because, again, this book was really about capturing a specific kind of time. I mean, I was I was writing in pretty rapid succession. I mean, the, I remember like the Whitney Houston poem. I was cooking lunch. I was grilling some salmon. And I <laughs> at the time, I would use like my refrigerator as a dry erase board. Oh. And I had written a version of the title on on the fridge. And I wrote it and then I went back to working on on, on lunch. And then I wrote like the first line so I didn't forget it. And then I wrote the second. And then the next thing I, I, I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. And I just had to pull the plug on my little George Foreman grill and run across <laughs> run across my apartment to like get to work on it. Um, so yeah, this was actually a pretty, it was almost like I am not trying to romanticize the pandemic because it was brutal. And honestly, there were moments where I was literally pulling out my hair, which mm. you see in one of the poems. Mm-hmm. But last summer was a very fruitful time for me. It was really spring into early fall. I was working on these poems. And so I don't know. It was almost like I, I tried to make it into like a residency space and waking up early in the morning. Like I'm like, my mornings are always the same. The evenings are Right. Always up to, you know, up to question. And so, yeah, that was it. No music. No music. I like having tea, coffee. What kind of tea? Um, I love a good throat coat tea. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like, I don't know, what is it? I think there's like star of anise in it, that like licorice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. flavor. Yeah, that's it. No snacks. No, I've never been a good snacker. Wow, I'm um, sorry for you. <laughs> It's like one of my I many joys of life. should learn yeah. to snack. Yeah. Ugh, it brings so I'm much I'm the person joy. that's like, I'll eat the whole bag of... That's also me. You know. I, I keep all my <laughs> snacks in the kitchen, but I work in a different room. So I'll like get up and like go get a handful of goldfish and then come back and like do work. And then when it's gone, I get up again. <laughs> Let me get my steps in. <laughs> LOL. I'm trying to think what else was helpful. Um, Something I find that's generally true for me is... It helps to have some sense of like as I'm wrapping up a writing set. And I particularly with poetry, an hour or two, hour or two. With 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 the memoir with prose, yeah, I might go three or four hours and, mm. and that's about it. And even that felt like a a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to have some sense of where I'm starting the next day. Okay. Whether it's I, I know I like I like where this draft is, but I think there's more revision to be done. Or having the beginning of an idea for the next thing. It, it's very rare um, and usually very unproductive for me to like wake up and just go to my desk and I have like no idea. I'm not just like sitting down looking at a right. blank page. Like, let's see where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Restaurant. Oh, 
Okay. Fighting for Saeed. my life every time. This okay. There we've had a lot of words. I'm a terrible speller. Okay. Everyone has a word I cannot spell. The only word I can spell that people can't spell is restaurant. But it's you, Angelina Jolie, Quentin Tarantino, Jason Reynolds. All of you are restaurant people. It's like the upper echelon of can't spell restaurants is like the cream Oof. of the crop. It's just I don't it's know rough. what is going on with brilliant people, but you guys can't spell restaurant, and I feel sorry for you. I just. <laughs> Yeah, all the vowels just are constantly rearranging themselves in front of. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I don't think I literally. I don't think I've spelt restaurant the first time with you know correctly in my life. In my life, (laughs) I love it. Well, you're in very good elite company. It's really an incredible list. Um, Okay. Just really quickly, you have a new podcast with Sam Sanders and Zach Stafford. It's called Vibe Check. It's great. There's Thank only you. been like, well, so we're recording a little right after it started. So by the time folks listen to this, there will be more episodes, but there's only been like two episodes. Mm-hmm. How is that for you doing something that's like conversational? It, there isn't that same ability to edit in the way that you would a poem and like you don't get to go right. back. <laughs> right. And I know you have experience because you did that. Twitter, BuzzFeed show, right. AM, AM to DM. To DM. Mm-hmm. So you like know how to do it. But I'm just wondering how like this long form sort of conversation thing differs for you, a person who loves a revision and an edit. Right. I mean, one, what helps tremendously is that the other two hosts, Zach and Sam, are my friends. Mm-hmm. And I trust them. They're also brilliant. Yeah. And so to me, I'm okay being quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm okay listening or framing a conversation as like, and I'll tell them, I'm like, I'm not an, I actually don't know what's going on. Mm. And so then kind of switching posture. I think long form conversation gets tricky when you are forced or or forcing yourself like out of your depths for like Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. beyond, like we can all, we can banter for, you know, a little bit, but when you're like, honey, I am five minutes. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and so my goal is to never just, be talking about something I have no idea about, you know, if, if, because I think it's, I think curiosity and even, you know, self-aware, like ignorance, but you want to do better. I think that's a rich line of inquiry, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think it helps that I trust them and they're incredibly interesting. So I'm always game to hear what they have to say, but also I know that like, I can just be myself in the conversation. I guess maybe that's my secret, right? Like whether it's the poem or whether it's the conversation, I I think I, I do a pretty good job of like compartmentalizing and just like drilling in mm. and just in that very narrow bubble that I create, right. just being fully myself there. Yeah. Well, the show is so good. I I really love it. I feel like there's a bazillion podcasts, but it definitely fills a space that I, I haven't heard before, you know? And so I really, and plus you're all... <laughs> really smart, interesting, funny people. <laughs> and I'm like always very curious what you have to, what you all have to say about things. Just gen- like sometimes something will happen and I'm like, I hope Saeed tweets about this. <laughs> like, I just want to know, you know, it's that like- makes me so happy. That makes me so happy. No, I mean, I just, I, I think our friendship is special and I, you know, we still, when it comes to media, we don't have enough black people and queer people being given the opportunity mm-hmm to speak in an authoritative way about things beyond queerness and pop culture. So right. I love that we can talk about Renaissance and, and we can talk about 
bodies, bodies, bodies like we do this week. But we're also like, you know, talking seriously about Biden administration, public policy or the monkeypox vaccine rollout, which right. is a mess, a you mess. know. And and so, yeah, it's just we deserve this. We all deserve this. And uh, yeah. I love that you love it. I Tracy. do. I really do. I, I'm like kind of a super fan of yours, which is like a little awkward to say because you're here. But like, it's true. I, like, anyways, we, we don't have to talk about this, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate um, it. Okay, so we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but I could do this forever. We literally could just talk all I, day. I know. I feel like we're going to have to be friends. Next time you're in LA, let's get together okay. with Sam and I'll okay. go to dinner or I something. Would I would love that. Um, okay, anyways. what This is this is a fucked up question to ask you because your book hasn't come out yet officially, but I'm going to do it because I'm that kind of chaos. <laughs> okay. What comes next for you? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm trying to be curious and, and open and really asking myself mm-hmm. I don't know. I I can tell you it's not going to be another poetry collection. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I, but beyond that, I don't know. Great. We'll see. That's great. That's a perfect answer. For people who love this collection, Alive at the End of the World, what other books would you recommend to them? Oh, gosh. Um, Magical Negro mm-hmm. by Morgan Parker. Mm-hmm. How to Write an Autobiography by Alexander Chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afro-Pessimism by Frank B. Walderson III mm. um, informs this book. It is a, that is a very challenging book. Mm-hmm. It is a very thorny, and I think he, I think he would say that too. Mm-hmm. It's a, a thorny, challenging book. I mean, it's called Afro-Pessimism. Yeah. So. yeah. But I think it's beautiful, and to me, it felt liberating. It mm. felt liberating to read someone willing to tear into these ideas, because I think... Black people, we just end up having to hold a lot back. Um, what else? I, I do love Finna by Nate Marshall. Yeah. Absolutely enjoyed that so book. I, and I enjoy him. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there for now. That's great. Is that a good list? That's like a great a list. list. Okay. That's a great list. Um, the many Again, many overlaps with the show. So people will know will know that Alexander Chi and, and Nate was a guest earlier this Look, year. Uh, let's be real, and, and this ain't this ain't no secret to the girls. The girls who get it get it. Um, Alexander Chi is the mother. Um, I am fortunate to have a lot of great, you know, mentors and 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 colleagues. And I, Alexander Chi is someone who has really raised a generation of writers. Yeah, you know, and in in so many ways. So yeah. Many ways. So you don't you don't know this, and as we're recording, my listeners will know this. Um, this was our book club pick for August. So okay. uh, the episode will come out. And I, I talk about the book with uh, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who's also sort of been, you know, raised in the school of Alexander Chi, Love if you her. will. Yes. And um, it's interesting because I'm not a writer. And so while I could appreciate Alexander Chi as a writer, like mm-hmm. I think his writing is incredible. A lot of that book didn't, didn't mean as much for me because I don't write. And so I couldn't mm. understand some of the things he was navigating. And we talk mm. a lot about it. Like I'm a person who loves books because I love reading. Mm-hmm. And so things that are instructive for writing don't always translate to me because I've sort of, I'm like, don't show me your work. Right. I just want to read. And it is. And it's very him showing his yeah. work. It's kind of, you're right. It's, it's a, it's a love letter to, to, to the form, the personal yeah, essay to form. Writing and, and to writers. And to writers. Yeah. And so there's parts of it that I just absolutely love, but it didn't hit me in the way. But the thing that I love about Alexander Chi is what you're saying. How many people he has been so, how many people whose work I love, mm-hmm. he has been influential for, how he's always supporting other authors mm-hmm. and authors of color specifically. Like he really is the person that so many people turn to and cite and like, 
what an incredible person to be yeah. like like the He's center I of mean, the web. I, I remember um finding one of his short stories it's it's the um it's the the story of like this blackbird it's mm. I, I can't remember the title um it's it's very sexy and erotic mm-hmm. and and morally slippery um i remember finding it as a junior in college i'm at western kentucky university going through everything you see me going through <laughs> in the book but i but you need to know that in the background of those chapters i had printed off one of alexander chi's short stories and i would just mm. carry it around with me and it mm. was just you know like a like a, a Bible, a Bible on the go for me. Just incredible. incredible I feel like person. the other person who's like that for a lot of people who have come on the show is Kiese Lehman. Yes. He's the other person yes. that is always cited as like this person mm-hmm. believed in me. They mentored me. They helped me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I think it's like really incredible to be alive at the time where people, you know, I, it's just, it makes yeah. me. Oh, emotional. and I would add, I would add how to slowly kill yourself and others mm. in America. That feels very much. Akin- yeah. yeah totally. Oh, uh. Love him. Okay, last question. Last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh my gosh. I think my mother. Mm -hmm. Um and and oh, I don't know what she would think about it. (laughs) 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 She would always get on me for cursing and stuff like that, you know. But um, but God, the conversations we could have. I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean I, I, I love writing. I love publishing books, but the conversations they make possible mm. are one of the great joys of my career. And mm-hmm. so, and you know, and for her, she's everything. She still is everything to me. And so, yeah, I would love to get to talk with her about yeah. these poems. Oh, I love that so much. All right, everyone. This has been an hour with Saeed Jones, author <laughs> of Alive at the End of the World, which you all must read. And if you haven't read the memoir yet, How We Fight for Our Lives, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast because you're not welcome here until you read that book. It's, <laughs> it's just like, you so will. good. I'm it's patient. So good. Oh, the, my, my book, my, the memoir is hunting you down. It'll yeah, get it's you. It's coming for you. <laughs> um, Saeed, thank you so much for being here. Tracy, thank you. This was a delight. (laughs) And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Saeed Jones for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to Dali Farr and Jasmine Alexander Brookings for helping to make this interview possible. Remember, Lisa Lucas will be joining us next week on September 28th to discuss our book club pick, The Trees by Percival Everett. A thriller and a real page turner. You do not want to miss it. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on Instagram at the stacks pod and on Twitter at the stacks pod underscore and check out our website, the stacks This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.